everything was just burr, you know, you know, just going up and down 100 revs as you went along. And this sound all the way up there, an incredible eerie sensation of loneliness, yet a man on his own. Exactly. It was like climbing to the bloody stars. Yeah. I mean, it was absolutely incredible. But you're sitting in the shell, and there you are, and it's actually silent, except for the whine of the engine. It's an amazing experience, but we had it for a whole minute, you know, and it, that's a long time. Yeah. To, to, it's not just like up there and down. It just went on. It was magic. What gives us our edge? And how do we go beyond it? How thin is the line between taking part and tipping into victory? What inspires those moments of rare advantage? that change the shape of a race? Are winners born or made? And what happens when things go wrong? Or when it all goes right? Welcome to The Edge. We'll be talking to people operating at the very edge of possibility. From athletes to actors, and from artists to entrepreneurs. I'm your host, Theo van den Bruecke. Watch out. This is The Edge, a podcast by Tag Heuer. Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to The Edge. It's a great honor and a pleasure to be here live in the Porsche garage at Le Mans uh, for the racing ahead this weekend. My name is Nicholas Biebeck. I'm the Heritage Director for Tag Heuer, and I'll be hosting today's podcast with two legends of motor racing, uh, multidisciplinary specialists, uh, multiple Le Mans winners in the room. Uh, so it's amazing to have Derek Bell, uh, a personal hero of mine, five times overall Le Mans winner, uh, four times of which with Porsche, and uh, Neil Jani, overall winner in 2016, also has been through the Formula E program and is back in World Endurance Championship here. So great to have you guys both with us uh, for this podcast. So thank you very much for, for joining. Um, just to kick off quickly, uh, Derek, can I ask you, uh, you know, what does being here at Le Mans mean to you? And can you explain a bit about your, your role in the racing uh, this weekend? Well, it's rather like being home because um, I did race here for the first time in 1971. It's uh, a long time ago, isn't it? And uh, f that's 50 years or something, isn't it? Yeah, that's ridiculous. Anyway, 51, and I was driving for Ferrari. We'll have to use that name occasionally. It's part of my history. And uh, I obviously stayed here and worked on the McQueen movie for three months after that first race I did, driving Ferrari and also Porsche with Joseph and Steve. So Le Mans became almost my second home. I spent so much time here. Then I did basically 26 ye years out of 27 racing here in, in, in a, just missed one year. And, uh, you know, so it really has become my home and the races are so long and we finished a tremendous percentage of them. So I guess I've been around here a few times. You certainly have. And, uh, and, and what's bringing you back? What's your role now with the, the organization? Well, this year, eventually, you become the Grand Marshal. Neil, if he sticks around long enough and keeps his nose clean, he'll be here as well one day. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's a great honor to be, to be asked to be the Grand Marshal. It's something I was never in a rush to do because uh, I just like racing. But when they start to call you a legend when you're in your 40s, you know you're in for trouble when you get into your late 60s and early 70s. But... It is fantastic to be back with all the people. And I, you know, like there's guys at Porsche I still recognize who actually recognize me, which is probably more important from those early days. And I have strong affection and obviously relationship with Porsche because, you know, 
I've stayed with them. I'm part of a Porsche dealership in America and that sort of thing. So it's, it's part of my pedigree. An amazing, amazing legacy here, Derek. So uh, amazing to have you back with us. And Neil, can you, I mean, understandably, you're, uh, you're a bit busier this weekend. You've got quite a lot going on. But, uh, you know, what does it mean for you being back here? You know, obviously overall winner in 2016 and now in the, the RSR. Uh, you know, what, what makes it special for you? You know, Lemois is this one race uh, where you come and, and you know uh, anything can happen. Uh, it's just proven over history and it has this big myth, this big history, which makes it even nowadays special. And, and because of what happened in the past with guys like Derek on this track and, and many other uh, great racing drivers. So it's, it's always special to be here. Fantastic. And now we know why we're here and what we're doing. And, you know, to be live at this amazing circuit is, uh, is fantastic for us. Uh, Derek, can we rewind a little bit and can you tell us a little bit about how you got started in motor racing and, uh, you know, what really brought you into the, into the four wheel, four wheel world? I really feel sorry for Neil having to sit there and listen to this stuff. <laughs> I apologize, Neil, but um, okay. yeah, I, I like history. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> history. I love it. Well, it was after the second world war we're talking about. So we're looking good. Yeah, <laughs> no, but you know, I think, you know, most things we actually enjoy nowadays in, in the cars in terms of already safety, but also technology uh, came because of what happened and what you guys developed. Yeah. And it's just a process. And that's why I think history is an important part for a racing driver also to understand, to know what you have nowadays and also what you can contribute to the future. And that's why. So go ahead. I'm, I'm happy to listening. Yeah. No, I mean, from the beginning, I, I grew up on a farm in England. Uh, we had several hundred acres. So I was driving from the age of nine. So driving was second nature for me. And uh, obviously at a certain stage, I thought, you know, I wouldn't mind doing a bit of racing at Goodwood. The racetrack at Goodwood, I can hit, see part of the track. I live on the sea in the complete south of England, but six miles away is Goodwood. And uh, so I used to go up and be a, about 13, 14, used to be a corner worker, or we call it a marshal in England. And uh, I was there the day Sterling Moss in 1962 had his big crash, which finished his career, which mm -hmm. seems remarkable, really. And, um, you know, I, I just wanted to race. But of course, in those days, there weren't racing schools, particularly, or how did you start? I didn't have any money to start with. And I always find that a puzzle with young people, how the hell they ever do it, like, how did he do it? And I maybe find out in a minute, but how it, you want to do it, but who the hell's going to pay for you to do it? Because your parents are never keen on putting up money, if that's the case, to go out and try and kill yourself. So, um, you know, it's a bit tricky. But um, I actually, I think I was in my teens when I heard about the uh, Jim Russell Racing School. So I went there as I left college. And um, I did very well. And Jim Russell one day picked me out as having an unusual, ta exceptional talent, he actually said. And he said, I can do nothing more for you. I haven't finished the course, but you should go out. I guarantee within a year you'll be in a factory team. So that was me out of that driving school stuff. And of course, um, two years later, I ended up going to partnership with a friend with the Little Lotus 7. And I won my first race at Goodwood in the rain. And, and then my father then became interested because, you know, they, people said to him, you can't let this guy stop. So we continued with Formula 3. And then I went up to Formula 2 and I... On my third race in Formula 2, uh, I had some, a good result against Jackie Stewart and people like that at Truxton and in Barcelona. And I got a call from Enzo Ferrari. And then sort of things started to fall in place. And Jimmy Clark had been killed at Hockenheim. That was my second race in Formula 2. 
which shattered me somewhat because he was my hero on the track and uh, has been ever since really. He was such a clean, modest sort of driver and immaculate the whole time, never got into trouble, but something broke that day and it wasn't his fault and as it often isn't. And uh, so that was really how I got started. And, you know, as I say, I, I actually went to Ferrari, which um, a lot of people said would, was a big mistake. He'll ruin your career. But I think if you ask Neil, would he, in his career, he would, probably would like to drive a Formula One car for Ferrari. There's something about it, even with Enzo not being there. And uh, just to have had that 18 months raving for the fact, I mean, my first Formula Two race in, as a professional, my first Grand Prix was the Italian Grand Prix next to Jackie Stewart and Denny Alm that sort of thing on the third row. And my first Le Mans was in 1970 with Ferrari, with Ronnie Peterson. So it's funny I should have that sort of you know, thoroughbred back there, yet I went to Porsche straight away. And then, of course, with Porsche, we had a lot of successes with the 917s. I was there the last year of that project, and God, it was a magnificent car. I mean, we were doing 396 down Mulsanne that year, which is pretty quick. That's how they and put in the chicanes now, no? <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> I didn't want, yeah, for you guys, it's, it's just as well. You'd have been 500 kilometers an hour. <laughs> but, it, it, but the car was so stable. But it was an amazing experience. And, um, you know, that was the beginning. And then I, you know, sports car racing in the 70s was in the, not doing so well. But I raced a bit of Formula One and a bit of Can-Am and a bit of World Championship sports cars with Alfa Romeo, that sort of thing, and moved on. Yeah. And, uh, you know, then with Porsche, we had those great successes in the 80s with the 936, 956, 962. And yeah. I was part of that program. So it really has been my life has been with Porsche, to be honest. And amazing that you spent your time between, you know, the two most illustrious teams in, in competition motorsport, really, you know, really great lauded powers. So, yeah. uh, you know, just an incredible, incredible yeah. career. Yeah. So, Neil, can you tell us a little bit about, you know, obviously a very different era from when Derek got his start, you know, motorsport has changed dramatically, not only the cars, but also, you know, the financial and business aspects of it. You know, how did you get into the racing? Um, basically a little bit like Derek, I <laughs> grew up, uh, in Switzerland and, uh, and my, uh, my dad always liked cars. We went go-karting there and I used to do a bit of karting. Uh, we did some races then, Swiss championship. That was still just hobby. You know, it always starts off as a hobby, you know, yeah. it's not, there was no thought process of no, no. becoming race driver. No. It's just like, okay, we like it. Um, and then I remember going rental karting in uh, in a track in switzerland and uh, there was a guy called peter collins which you might know oh yes uh the yeah. former lotus yes uh, that's right yeah. yeah he was there in switzerland and then he was like oh you you need to do more racing so with him his connection then i started doing international go-kart races and then we started looking at it a bit more professionally and uh yeah that's when it started taking off and he's still a good friend we never had any management but he's a good friend because he doesn't live too far from where we are and uh went to formula renault and so on and one uh, i think the deciding point maybe that's one important thing deciding point to when i became a professional racing driver or not or when we decided to go ahead was 2002 in spa we had a formula renault european championship race and uh, i was on pole was uh, 69 cars or so and <laughs> it rained overnight and it was just like you know the semi-conditions we know spar in the rain <laughs> it was the semi-conditions so i opted to go for rain tires i was on pole i thought hmm, maybe last laps would be okay uh, i was 17 
and there were a lot of good drivers on the grid. Uh, if you if I look back, you know there was Lewis Hamilton, there was Robert Kubica, Christian Kalin, Jamie Green, wow. Bruno Spangler. I mean, ever I think the top fifteen all have made a professional career. So I won that race uh, with eight seconds lead, and uh, then I got called by McLaren uh, first time. Dave Ryan, which you might yeah, know yeah. as well. And uh, but also Williams uh, and Sauber Formula One team. So that was for us. Hmm. I think now we need to look at it. And that was at the age of seventeen, eighteen. So that was basically, I would say, the the turning point. Mm. It, it's amazing to think that you know you guys have made this incredible career out of motor racing. But you know, as you both said, you don't really think about it as a career to begin yeah. with, and you probably need a contingency plan. And uh... <laughs> there's one thing I'd love to say. This is what. It's a big difference between us, although we had a similar way. Is I never sat in a race car till I was 23. Oh, wow. Because we didn't have karting, you see. Yeah, so I, yeah. I drove farm tractors when I was 10 years old, yeah, doing 12 miles an hour. <laughs> you know, and so that is the big difference that we started much later than they did. And they, that had to be such an advantage to them. But I'm not saying I had an advantage or he had. The fact was, it meant that everybody has an advantage to get into the, the rules of. of the road of driving cars so young, whereas in our era, we really didn't. Yeah. You follow yeah. me? And, yeah. and now I think you, you went to the next step, no? And that's yeah. the simulator. Yeah, and of now course. The, yeah. Esports and the older, the younger drivers which are coming, I can see that, that I'm now actually one of the older ones yeah. because they already do simulators at the age of seven, eight, mm -hmm. nine. They know all the tracks. Yeah. They come to a track, they're well prepared. Mm -hmm. There is no thing it's like amazing. a new racetrack. There is no thing that they don't know the steering wheel with the buttons. Mm -hmm. And uh, there are a lot. That's the next step of preparation is already happening mm -hmm. there. So mm -hmm. nowadays, if you don't do a simulator, you're also in trouble. Yeah. And, and I think it's interesting just the, the involvement. And yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. so in, in that way, also, I'm getting quickly old. <laughs> <laughs> but the interesting thing also there is what he's saying is that. Because we went, I mean, I always use the Nürburgring as an example. I mean, 170 odd corners on the old track, if not more then, actually. And when I, you know, I went around in my E-type for six laps, and it wouldn't do more than four without burning the brakes up. And I wasn't going past it, just stop it going downhill. But, you know, you could, there's no way to learn a track. Mm. And nowadays, as he said, I mean, I guess you, you've obviously raced the ring. You've no doubt have ridden some of it in probably a good simulator at some point. I've only seen it on simulator first. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like, didn't learn it differently. No. The only, I mean, I'm never sure about simulators because the ring has got such a feel to it. You know, we're coming off the ground and the feel of the car coming off. I guess it, I, I've driven on a good simulator. I, I have to say the Hong Kong, funnily enough. But the only time. But it never gives you enough sensation. I mean, would you say that's true? Yeah, obviously, you know, these, the running over crests and yes. so on, how the car falls yes, and so yes, on. But yes, that's yes. where I think the go-karting is important. Yeah, it's the okay. basic feeling you produce as a yeah, kid. Yeah, yeah. But for the line, the line stays the same. The bumps you feel in the sim. Mm. Uh, obviously, how you handle it is then the question. Mm. But you don't come anymore to like the Schwedenkreuz no. uh, thing. You don't turn up there and are surprised. Oof. Yeah, the air there nearly. Or yeah, that's right. There's no surprises anymore. No, 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 so, no, no good. 
Well, I, I guess there's this component of being a, a good racing driver, you know, entry and exit speeds, following the line and everything else. But then, you know, from the sim and all this kind of stuff, you know, these young drivers can learn the etiquette, they can learn the buttons on the wheels, and they can learn, you know, getting in and out the pit lane. So mm -hmm. it's, you know, as you say, it's a, it's a very, very different era, and it, it really gives them a head start in yeah, a way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But, you know, I guess for each generation, it's a level playing field because yeah. you all have the same same ingredients. But I, just to, to move on to the next step, uh, you know, obviously, the two of you have raced in a whole host of disciplines in motorsport. Derek, you've done Formula 3, Formula 2, Formula 1, endurance. Neil, you've done endurance. You've done uh, Formula same, E. Yeah. Formula yeah. E, Formula 2, mm. Formula 1 as well tested. Mm. So yeah. mm. you know, I've all the cars, yeah. What, what's so special about endurance racing? Uh, you know, what really makes it so, so close to, to both of your hearts? I think we, we're, I think we're sick. That's the problem. <laughs> Who needs pain for six hours or 24? I mean, when you think about it, I mean, they have three drivers and it's a slightly different. We had two drivers. So I knew I couldn't fail because if I fail, we were out. There's a possibility if he was out, the other two could carry on. That's the only way I'd look at it is that there was always a bit of relief there. But you went into a race going, God, if I screw up or I feel ill or I eat something I shouldn't eat, you know, we're out. But that's as far as the, that's concerned, not the driving. I just think that I think endurance racing suits some drivers better than it does others. I know it's called endurance, and it is. But I mean, I mean, these days they drive them absolutely flat out. We drove them flat out to a different limit. You know, I mean, I remember, I never remember going around slowly and saying, oh, just cruise here. There was none of that. I mean, it was always flat out, but they were telling you we were trying to conserve fuel inevitably all the way through the 80s. It was purgatory. And so you'd have to have the boost down. You had the mixture, everything was down, but you had to drive it flat out, uh, but save fuel. And that was a horrible way to go. It got better because Porsche, the reason Porsche go racing is for the development of something. Every race has to be the development of something. Every time I moaned about some new thing like the PDK coming on and, the, and then we had ABS was put on us just before practice or qualifying at Fuji. I mean, what a bloody thing to do to us. <laughs> I was already struggling through PDK. And then they say, oh, and this weekend, Mr. Bell, you will drive with the ABS. And I'm going, that's not really very fair. <laughs> you know, but, but it wasn't just me. It was all of us. But it was just was crazy. And but, you know, you, Porsche's philosophy is you have to be developing something. And that's what we've done. for, And that's what endurance racing has done to a great degree, I think, is improved the car. Yeah, I think one thing which is, has a huge influence nowadays is software. And I think the most difficult thing is to produce a car which still feels natural that you drive, and yet the software works in its way to assist you. Because what happens mostly is you have a software that works very well, and you have to drive to the software. But then it's not natural. So that's the, the constant struggle nowadays to well, how can I rely on my feeling and make the software work, you know, with brake bias, migration, mm -hmm. a bit more front, rear, TC, uh, torque vectoring, okay, it's not allowed anymore, but you have all these things and and uh, I think that's again where it comes in with the simulator, you know, the young guns which just do simulate driving, they just drive according to the software. Mm -hmm. And this developing in that way, you can see it's going more that direction, but the big struggle or the big difficulty is how do you keep it natural so that you can rely on your senses and uh, this is a yeah the biggest story right now yeah. I would say 
Yeah, I mean, uh, when you get back, ours was quite crude. It was very basic. I mean, I, I don't think they're any more intelligent than we were, or, they're, or I was ever necessarily better than him, or he better than me. We were just bloody good at what we did. And he adapted to the way he's had to go, and I had to adapt the way we were given, and that was it. I always say, you know, put any of these young guys, or put Lewis Hamilton, you know, in Pangio's Mercedes, and he would have been good, mm. let's say. Use him as an example for this. Because if you're a racer, you're a racer. I know we're talking about the balance of the car and all that. That's a hell of a lot they've had to learn. And I'm not sure that I, wanted, I want to do that. I just wanted to get out and race. And I swear that's what they, they want too. And I remember David Coulthard saying to me one day, the only time we can really enjoy it is when the flag drops and we off we go, because it's up to us then. And you know they can't tell us anything from the pits anymore. We're on our own, going for it. And I that's and I thought, well, I admire them for that. But what a pain in the ass, because we 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 never had to worry about t the technology side. They, they set the car up, told us that. I mean, we would change the handling of the car, of course. Yeah. But you know, when it came to mixtures and all the different yes, items yeah. you're talking about, we didn't have to worry. And I suppose, in a way, he's grown up with it. That it is part of his 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 body now. So he's used to it. He's never thought. If he looks at it like, well, he must go, they're lazy bastards in those days because they didn't have to. <laughs> well, actually, I have a good story there um, because you call it that the technology you guys had crude. It was uh, very simple or crude. Yeah. But actually, you know, we, we ran um, the solitude for the Porsche Museum. Yeah. I ran the 62 uh, Formula One car from Porsche. Uh, oh, yes. And. Uh, yes. The museum told us uh, that actually they can't use the young drivers anymore nowadays mm. because they don't know how to stick shift, shift yeah. with the oh, gears and yeah. everything. So for them, it's not simple yeah. technology. For them yeah. in nowadays, it's yeah. hard, difficult technology yes. because you don't need to learn. So I still learned it from the very old days yeah. when I drove yeah, uh, sure. road cars. Yeah. But I'm just in the middle, yeah. so yes, they said yeah. like, yeah, you are just, well, you and Andre, we were one of the last ones to be able to drive yeah, those no, cars. I, yeah. It's it's just interesting how this. Yeah. Yes, I understand. I think that's it's such a good point because often people say to me, "Thank God we got you driving the car this weekend, Derek, because you know how to shift gear." Yeah, you can't believe it, can you? And you go, "Really?" What's you assume everybody can. You know, I've got two sons, and one's twenty-two now, and you know, he 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 couldn't wait to get to learn to drive manual because he knew he had to because he wants to be able to drive everything at any time, not racing any particularly, mm. but. Just driving, yeah, and I think it's such an asset. Well, and it's amazing, you know. I've spoken to a number of other, you know, professional drivers and a lot of motoring enthusiasts, and they go from, you know, a sixty-two two-liter short wheelbase nine eleven, and then they go to a brand new GT three RS or something, yeah. and it's totally different. You know, yeah. there's no real comparison between the no. two. You know, totally different mindset to thinking and how you drive. Mm. Okay, there's some some fundamentals underneath, but they're, you know, chalk and cheese really. Mm. So, mm. big big changes. Um, uh, that's why I would say it's not simple technology really yeah. anyway it's, it's a point of view yes exactly i yeah. think it's a time point of view you can't yes. say it was more simple because some can't handle it from nowadays what happened then. No, no, so, no, no. Uh, yeah I, and you know when you look at a car like the the 917 you know with huge horsepower yes. you know ultra lightweight you know clearly that's that's a tricky thing to drive but so is a 919 yeah. evo you know? Know. Exactly. <laughs> no we know that well the turbo well, no, I, I drove the, the can-am car too that was quite a monster. I remember. That I had a turbo leg. I, yeah, I drove it at Goodwood, up the hill at Goodwood. I did it at Weissup soon after we'd won yeah. one of the cars in eighties. Was that but the Brumos one? Yeah, I just drove the one from the factory, okay. which is identical okay. anyway, pretty much. And I, so I, we went to uh, to Goodwood, and I remember came after my first run. Every time I accelerated, 
um, I got I got clutch slip, you know. And um, I came back down to Peter Falk. It's only four gears on the bottom, Peter Falk. And I said, oh, I said, Christ, Peter, I said, I think you're going to have to, uh, you know, do something about, the, you know, about the uh, clutch. Because I said, it's slipping every time I accelerate. He said, no, that's not clutch. He said, that's, that's, uh, that's wheel spin. And I was going up the hill, and every time I tap, I go, and the wheels are just spinning. <laughs> and I, I thought it was clutch slip. <laughs> Unbelievable, isn't it? Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah, 1,000 plus horsepower or something. You had 1,300 if yeah. you needed it, but I only drove it with a, I say only, with a 1,000. <laughs> and I think they probably cut it back a bit from that. But yeah. that was, so, you've driven it. I have not driven oh. the, the Brumos one. I've driven um, no, the one from was Jackie, the... Jackie X, the, the Jules car. Oh, that was oh, the 935. Oh, yeah, it was. Yeah. I think you it was right it car. We won with that. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, it was the winning yeah. car because that had a huge turbo. Yeah, that's right. It did. Well, they did. And then it goes. Yeah, we, Yes, it's strange that we did, but of course, then we went to the 962. I mean, that actually, that car was what became a 962 engine. Uh-huh. And that car was sitting in the museum. Yeah. And at the end, when it came to that year, which is 1982, um, who was it? Peter Schutz, the president, American guy, president of Porsche, can you believe? He said, What are we going to run at the mark this year? And they said, Well, last year we drove the 924 Carrera GTS or GTR that I drove. We had three cars then. And they said, we've got nothing to drive yet because of the new rules coming out, which was the 962 coming out. And he said, but we must have a car to win the race somewhere. They said, well, we have the 936 in the museum. And he, and he said, but the, the engine's really not up to it anymore. So they went, they were walking, apparently, stories around the museum. And Peter Schutz, they were in the engine department. He said, what's that there then? They said, that's the engine that we built for um, Indy. So he said, well, can't we just run that in the car, but make it run on fuel rather than methanol. So they put it in the car, we took it to Le Mans, and we won them up. And, the, and that's <laughs> the car you drove, you see. Yeah. But it still had lag. Yeah, yeah. But, just, but it wasn't, obviously it wasn't twin turbo, but it, it was. It was a long forest gear also. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Super <laughs> it, long forest gear. But it was, uh, it was a, heck of a, a heck of a project, you know, and that was the beginning of the 962 era, really, or 956. I mean, that, that's an amazing topic to touch on. Uh, you know, this development from the 935 to the 936 yes. and then obviously the 962. Yes. Um, you know, Derek, obviously you've driven all of these kind of legends from Porsche Motorsport and yeah. Neil, it sounds like you've had a go in all of yeah. them. You know, where, how do you benchmark them? How do you compare them? Is there any which are particular favorites for you? Um, I mean, all I tell you is the 935 and I don't know if you really drove a hot one. But I mean, those things used to make your hair curl. I mean, you get in it, and I used to get in that 93, which is the 911 looking car. I used to get in it, and we had, I mean, I drove with John, I drove right at the very end of that era, so the car was perfected as far as being quick in every respect. It was K, basically Kramer did the modification, they were called a K4, I think, or maybe more than that. And they had so much power. But I mean, I used to get in it, and you had the gear lever was up almost by your shoulder like this. And you get in the car, <laughs> start the engine up, and I would say, Normally it's you or me. Today it's me, and I just fucking I stick it in the first gear and just oh, whoop, off you'd go. And you come to the corner, there's massive wheels on the back, and you it's going to push like hell. So you turn in the corner and you're waiting. Come on, power! Come on, power! Like this, you know, and then whoop, and, off it you and go. then he pushes. And you had to turn it absolutely perfectly so that the power came on. And when the wheels spun, they spun out, and you got the line out the corner. But what an animal! That was the real animal of the Porsches, in my opinion. But it was it was a perfect animal, you know. It, you knew what it was. You attacked it, and it was a, it was a real man's car. So if you ever get the chance to 
you know, okay. flex your muscles and get in and grin it and drive it. It's magnificent, actually. Okay. And Neil, yeah. any for you? I mean, you know, obviously your your career is dominated by the modern era. You know, the nine one nine, which has become an yeah. equal legend in the Porsche history. But then, you know, the RSRs of today, which are just amazing pieces of engineering. Mm, yeah, yeah. Anything there or anything from the past that really you know speaks to you? I've driven all the old ones, so nine seventeen, uh, obviously the the Jules car, uh, and. But I've never pushed them hard, you know, mm. so it's it's hard to compare to when you drive on the limit, yeah, I think, is. and, and yeah. driving just for exhibition yeah. a bit around. Um, but in that terms, for me, for sure, it's the 919 because yeah, I had I had the pole positions here two in a row, the lap record I did on that one. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah it was uh, for me, that's the era I've been in and where I've obviously developed the car from zero up yeah. and uh, with a lot of gimmicks and technology yeah. also over 1000 horsepower yeah, yeah. Uh, four-wheel drive yeah amazing so from that point of view i think that was really the the car at the moment the latest with with a lot of technology which we see now in in the road car yeah i, I, I say one thing about what he's saying is that he didn't quite say it but the fact is to me i remember being told for qualifying i had everything i had in the 962 and just give it everything you've got and you must have had that at a certain point in qualifying yeah. and that this circuit is unbelievable when you're absolutely got everything on the limit you know yeah. that you can take sort of chances with it because if you stuff it well we got 24 hours to rebuild <laughs> it but it's not the race you're not letting anybody down and it, it's the most amazing place when you just go out there and it's it's like you've got a wild animal and it, and it just flows and even the, last night i did a lap in a in one of the rsrs and it it was just fabulous to yeah. drive for me having not driven here for 15 years but these corners they they none of them are nasty not really it may be a bit off yeah. they flow and that's what you want to they keep building these tracks with these corners that tighten up this track is still flows i reckon and that's what makes the beauty of it and i wonder if there's an element of the fact that you know due to the fact that you've you've both raced here over the 24-hour period you know you've put in so many laps over and over and over again you become so familiar and you know there's not many serious corners on the track that you can really you know uh, embrace it and you know get close to it and feel this flow and this rhythm yeah. um you know i i have the utmost respect for both of you because you know i imagine this you know driving through the night you know you're thundering down Mulzahn at you know full throttle uh, you know, what does it really feel like? You know, what's this? What's this emotion when you're sitting there in the cockpit by yourself? You know, uh, just just in this in this moment, enjoying it. D Derek, I mean, well, is there you, anything? You look at me first, but you don't have to. But <laughs> I'm sure <laughs> the thing is, we used to have it, as you know, without chicanes, and it had a different atmosphere because I remember when we used to drive into the track on a Monday, you know, or whenever you came in, you'd drive into the town for the plaster or public for the scrutineering, which you no doubt had at early stages for you. And you drive in there and you drove that bloody tunnel coming into under the cathedral and, and suddenly you're going, I'm going to be driving into the unknown tomorrow afternoon. Because you knew that nobody, every time I drove it was a, a newer car than had been the year before, a better car. And you're going to be doing something nobody else had ever done. I know your teammates are doing it too, but you individually are going to do it. And this track has that uniqueness that to me no other track has in the world because you've never done it as often. Mm. And... Um, you know, you'd, you'd get onto that track and out you'd go and you'd, you have so much respect for it because it is so fast. And I think that's, that's the amazing thing about it. It's purely the speed and having the car that will do it. And because of Porsche, they've done it so, for donkey's years, you know, as we say in English. And 
So they know all the answers. They know absolutely everything about it and what to do, whether it was the 917, my first time, and Norbert said to me that after, quality, after test weekend, and he were driving, walking across the paddock, and he said, hey, Junger, he said, how many revs are you pulling on your last run today? And I said, 8-1. And he said, ah, oh, that is good, because at 8-2, she blows up. <laughs> I thought, this is German technology just taken to that limit, you know. They're unbelievable. Yeah. And then he started to laugh and he had a slide rule because he didn't have computers. I mean, talk about the shit you have. We didn't, we didn't have, he didn't, he didn't have a computer. He had a slide rule and he's working it out, walking across the paddock. And, um, and he said, and he said, and he started to laugh. I said, what are you laughing about? He said, I just calculated your top speed. So I said, what is it? He said, I think it better you don't know. And I said, look, if we got to drive this thing for 24 hours, it really is nice to know. It's just a nice thing to know. And he said, well, allowing for tire growth, that's 396 kilometers. I went, gee, <laughs> bloody whiz. And that's he, why they didn't put a, a, a gauge in, so you didn't know how <laughs> no, exactly, you go. They yeah. just gave you the revs. <laughs> Unbelievable. Yeah. And that was the way Porsche did it. And I mean, it never let us down. I mean, you know, we never had accidents as such. And Neil, from your side, you know, what, what's that sensation like, you know, blasting through the night all on your own in the cockpit? I, I think in, in one way, it's two different things. You know, qualifying is obviously mm. not that important for the race, but yet it's still important. It's yeah, just a thing <laughs> because it's the moment, as Derek before said, you get new tires, low fuel, full power. It's everything. Mm. And you have to go for it. You can take every curb, you go for it. So you know also that around this track, even nowadays, uh, you go for it. It means taking risks, mm. which you have to take. Mm. There is no quick lap around Le Mans without a risk. And, uh, and for me, still the moment uh, in 2015 when I had my first poll with the 919 and that lap record, I remember they said, okay, 10 o'clock, qualifying starts. You go out first, one set of tires, one run. Yeah. All cars line up, the Audis, Toyotas, all of us. And I knew it's now or never. And it was, it should be a front row for Porsche. First time with the 919, that was the aim. Mm. And, and the, you know, just that pressure build yeah, up sure. and you did the kind of excitement. Yeah. But you also know it's turn one, Dunlop. It needs to stick. And mm. when you come out of that corner, mm. you start mm. off a quality lap. Right then. good in turn one mm. you know it's gonna go yeah mm -hmm. you started off bad it's just yeah, it already it's all yeah. falls apart it's a long way around <laughs> yeah and and for me that moment then okay that all worked out and then leaving the track i had that one song was on the radio i still hear that song it puts me right back in that time that feeling of how i felt right then yeah yeah and and i think that's what makes them more special you, yes. you relate with either a song yes. or something it just puts you back yeah in the moment of that tension F fear is the wrong word but yeah. respect of the moment yeah. Yeah. and yeah and everything it's the only place you have that there's no other track i don't you might yeah. but i oh. don't use any other track I, i'm sorry if i'm butting in but i i didn't actually I totally answer your question about <laughs> driving in the night i'll very quickly do it because we didn't have the chicanes, as you know. So we were one minute full throttle. And one minute's a long time, flat to the floor in fifth gear. And um, I remember you're droning down that straight, and it goes on and on and on and on. You need to look at an in-car in a big screen to sort of really visualize. You've done it, but with, that, with the chicanes, which in a way is a pity. Because if yeah. you did it flat, there's something about it at night. And you suddenly find how close you are to this car. You're sitting in it. 
in front of you with a control. Of course, in our case, we could read things. <laughs> we want lights telling us. And you just look at it. And the water temperatures were the same on both sides of the engine. Oil pressure was consistent. Everything was just burr, you know, you know, just going up and down 100 revs as you went along. And this sound all the way up there. And, 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 and an incredible, eerie sensation of loneliness, yet a man on his own. Exactly. It was like climbing to the bloody stars. Yeah. I mean, it was absolutely incredible. Because you're sitting in the shell. Yeah. And there you are. And it's actually silent, except for the whine of the engine. It's an amazing experience. But we had it for a whole minute, you know, and it, that's a long time. Yeah. To, to, it's not just like up there and down. It just went on. It was magic. It's true about that night driving. Yeah. I still get that uh, exiting Turtle Rouge towards yeah. the first chicane. Yeah, sure. Mm. And you're there at night and there's no car in front or no, in the back exactly. or you just see them exiting the, yeah, the, next. the other chicane. Mm. You see the tail lights, yeah, someone yeah. far away yeah, at yeah, the back, yeah. no one. Photographers yeah. flashing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's it, it. Gives you that feeling of loneliness at some stage, uh, but in a, in a positive way. Yeah, in, a, cal in a calming way. It's almost romantic. Yeah. It's yeah. a strange a thing. Way. You really feel part of that car. That car is you, and it's keep, and basically it's keeping you alive. I mean, it's amazing. You know, you're part of the car. You're in it. You're holding it. It's just wonderful. I mean, both of you have spoken about, you know, the qualification spec thing I find fascinating, but we've probably got, not got much time to dig into it. But I think, you know, this understanding of risk and this calculation of risk, yeah. you know, you guys are clearly masters at it because, you know, to make your way through a the qualification and hitting every apex and doing mm. what you've got to do, but then to survive these long stints at Le Mans, yeah. you know, how, how do you balance this idea of risk and how do you make the decisions? And I mean, you know, obviously, Derek, you, you know, if you're in a 917 or something with virtually nothing separating you from the outside world, it's one thing. But, you know, Neil, when you're in a 919 Evo with all this power underneath you and, you know, mm. the risk that you're going to hit a slower car, uh, you know, how, how do you do those calculations and how do you make those assessments in, in the heat of the moment? Eh? Neil, if you want to start with this one. I was talking with Derek before. Uh, we said uh, at his time... Uh... Motorsport was dangerous and uh, sex was safe, no? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, with us, it's the other way around. So, uh, in, in a way, you know, we, we have this, for sure, great technology for safety and so on. So, small crashes don't hurt, really. But we do know when, when you go off with our car, because you're so quick in, yeah. in the Porsches or in Turtle Rouge, mm. It's not necessarily that you will uh, break a leg, but it's a G-force. Yeah. It's a G-force yeah, that you worry from because you know the hit can just knock everything yeah, out yeah, of yeah. you. Concussions mm. and yeah. Yeah, and mm. a lot more. And you can't breathe first moment you hit, then that, that's mm. the worst feeling when you can't breathe. Uh, you know, it's all these things that come together. But nevertheless, you don't think of that because no, of the, the be race, yeah, mm. racing in the end, it's, it's for me, it's a calculated risk exactly i've if used you, that term all the if, time if you take risk uh full 100 percent risk you can do it once or twice but it will not last long even mm. nowadays mm. i think it's about this calculated risk yes. and i think that's where you will find the good and the bad drivers at mm. le mans because mm. there's many drivers who can be quick but there's not everyone who can be exactly on this edge knife's edge without falling over they don't know the limit do they? exactly mm. And uh, you, and I think that is where Derek said it correctly. Also, is in endurance racing, the ones which are good, they're just good on that edge, you know, overtaking cars, not taking too much risk. Mm. Sometimes give up a second, mm. wait, yeah. 
and then go. Well, it, it's great for me to hear you say that. Because the one thing that's worried me about this modern era is they don't wait very much. And I used to, I mean, times, we mentioned how many times we caught cars. Well, there was a bigger speed differential in my day, I'm sure. But you catch a car going into, well, let's say Porsche Curves, for example. It's not always easy to get round somebody there because you're coming up so fast. But I would time it so I could pick them up between a corner rather than jump inside them, screw my line up mm. and my time and screw his time. It's better to back off, mm. lose half a second, but go by him and then make it up again, you know, coming out. Um, and I've always felt that. And I've, I've watched quite a bit, quite a lot of their racing. And I always said the, the guys are getting a bit desperate. And to me, there's almost been too much inter-team fighting. Now, I haven't noticed it at Porsche. But I noticed it with another uh, one of the companies, and I thought, why do they battle so much between cars? We're in a team. I mean, if I had done that in my day and punted one of my teammates off, John Wire would have thrown the keys away and said, "Out of here, you know, don't bother to come back." One of my teammates, Mike Halewood, had an incident in the rain, and when he eventually got back on the back of a motorbike, John Wire stood and looked at him and he said, "Hello, Mike. Don't call us. We'll call you." <laughs> uh, in other words, when we're ready for you to come back. In five years' time, we'll call you, you know. And that's the sort of, it was like a headmaster. The other thing I must say, because I'm sure we've got to go, um, is the fact that he was talking about the curbs, you see. Now, I, from what I recollect, we could not hit curbs. And I wouldn't, I, I think in some cases they might have been higher, but I certainly know we dare not hit curbs. And, you know, I remember Norbert Singer saying, don't hit the curbs. So everything we did uh, had to be, between those flanges across the road. And I see them, I've seen a picture of it just somewhere magazine this morning, cars got all four wheels bouncing off a curb. And the times I've seen, I'm going, shit, we could never do that. Yeah, a lot of lap time in there. Yes, <laughs> yeah, curb, exactly. well, of course. You know, curb riding nowadays, you do it properly, it's one and a half, two seconds yeah, a lap. It's amazing. And the it? thing is always with the curb, you either hit it full yeah. or not. Yeah. If you hit it halfway, it will throw you off. Yeah. yeah. And that's the thing. That's why we say I mean, qualifying is a full commitment lap was on the curb. Yeah. In the race, yeah. you could not hit them flat out like that uh, all the time because yeah. you know it will go wrong at some yeah. stage. <laughs> <laughs> but but. I, I guess that's, uh, you know, a product of this, you know, modern safety era where the curves yeah. have become a bit flatter and less mm -hmm. slippery and, you know, you've got a bit more track to play with. So, uh, you know, different eras for and different better, things. Better suspensions and, sure. you know, right. and, and, and data yeah. to see if you have a problem that yeah. could break mm. the car. Nowadays, we don't have to wait until it breaks. We can see it already thanks to sensors. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, yeah, we've, you we've spoken about computers a lot, but, you know, with, you know, modern, you know, CAD design and fi finite element analysis, you know, it's a bit different from your slide yeah, rule exactly. calculating top speeds. So, yeah. I, I mean, one thing, you know, we've got a bit of time for a few more questions, but I think one thing I really want to touch on is we're, you know, Good friends with uh, good friends with Porsche here, and we're in the garage with them. You know, let's just finish up on the note of you know, Derek. You've driven for a couple of teams, but you know, what do you think makes Porsche so successful here with so many uh, so many overall wins at Le Mans? You know, what is it? Is it the preparation? Is it the relationship with the drivers? Is it the engineering? It's the total commitment to motorsport. So many people come in, they come in for five years, three years, and then duck out, and they sort of think they've got their bit of glory. They come in and basically screw up the future for a while with way out cars, way out technologies, and then clear off and leave us to tidy up the dirt. And Porsche have always been there. And I remember at one stage, or, or put it this way, people criticized Porsche. And I said, well, 
in my era, if it hadn't been for Porsche, there would have never been sports car racing because the, the, the Group C era, they supplied all the cars for the grid. Now, when they built your 919s, I respect it was a different era, but if Porsche had built more of those and sold them to private teams around the world, um, they could have kept it going for years. But because, them, but because one became so damn good, the other people had to drop out. And I think that's a pity. But when you were set, I mean, we, there were 20, there'll be 2962s on the game. And they weren't called Porsche. It was called the Lernbrau car, the Rothmans car, the, the Richard Lloyd car. You know, the Walter Brunn car. Walter Brunn car, you know, and the Yers car. I mean, all these different Porsche. But they didn't always use the word Porsche. Right? Porsche might say, well, we're not interested in that unless our name's out there. But Porsche got their, their coverage. So on the, every damn poster was about a Porsche car. Um, but they supported sports cars to such a whole, and they have to be, you know, se celebrated for what they've done for racing. And even if they weren't at the highest level, they were at the low level with GTs. And they've always supplied. And I go, if it hadn't been for Porsche, there wouldn't be any daddy sports car racing. It would all be racing MGs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they have a, a great history because that's, there's this famous advert. Yes. Yeah. Nobody's perfect. Yeah, exactly. So they have like yeah, the top 10, except one is not a Porsche. Yeah, exactly. I got, I, I got I my T-shirt out the other day, a fabulous <laughs> red T-shirt. And I was going to wear it. I thought, I can't wear it. I don't wear those sort of shirts. But I literally got it out at home just last week. I unfolded it. A Porsche. Yeah. Oh, my God. That wonderful one. And I yeah. think that's that's actually even for non-Porsche fans, you know, someone who for, supports another brand or the, even for them, that's an iconic yeah. T-shirt or an yeah, iconic yeah. thing. And it's, it goes beyond the brand mm, there. Exactly. It goes for what we love in racing, Le Mans yeah. and so on. And I think that's that's the bigger picture. In the end, we are all here for the same love. I, yeah. And you think of this seriousness of all the preparation that Porsche put in to win overall. And then you get this great, you know, German joke in a sense of yeah. this nobody's perfect. You know, it's such a, a wonderful piece of the history. Um, I guess we've we've got to get pretty close to wrapping up, but you know, obviously we're we're looking towards the future now. You know, we have electrification, we have the hypercar class coming. Uh, you know, do, do you guys have a bit of perspective on on where you see the future going? And and you know, are you optimistic for how how motorsports developing uh, long term? Neil, if you want to chime in, I see it uh, very positive now uh, with these new rules, LMDH coming um, for endurance racing. Uh, first of all, they're building the quickest cars off the field so that customers can buy them again mm. and can actually run them because the 919 for example was so complicated it was impossible for a non-factory team to run it and uh but there's ferraris joining again you know bmw is coming audi is joining peugeot is there toyota is there so many brands all going for outright victory at le mans and you know when have you seen that last time i think Derek was there. Uh, well, probably not even in our era, but there was a lot of it. But yeah. um, no, I agree with you. I think it, you have to look to the super, the future in a big, big way, not just a little way. I'm sort of personally, I'm not the greatest electrical person. He is obviously after winning championships. But I'm, the reason I love Formula E is the fact it's given these guys who didn't have a decent drive for two or three years mm -hmm. to get out there and keep their, their racing going. And look, there's more than you, the other chaps out there. And it always felt, you know, it's such a devil when, You've been right at the top of your racing for three or four years, and suddenly they stop that. The rules change, and they stop. But fortunately, Formula E was there to help them. And whatever you, if there's any criticism, I haven't got it for Formula E. I'm not a great electrical person. I just love the smell of a of an ordinary engine and the sound of a V12 at ten thousand revs. We all love it, though. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. 
And so you can't get away from it, you know. Uh, but I realized I'm in the old school, and that's all I really knew. And I've been driving an electric car. Uh, I drove it to Goodwood the other day, and it's an interesting experience, you know, with a thousand horsepower and all that stuff. It was pretty undrivable. But anyway, um, but it's, uh, it was an experience. But, uh, and I guess the future's there. I, what I can't quite get to grips is that there's no, there's no shifting gear. Yeah. You know, I yeah. mean, I've, twice I felt like vomiting when I first drove it. Once okay. the first time up straight, the second time up the hill at Goodwood, and I put my foot down, it went, but <laughs> I, think, I think there is, you have to like differentiate nowadays. I think there is like driving from A to B. Yes. Mm -hmm. How do you want to get from yes, A to B? Yes, and yes. you just get transported. Mm -hmm. And what's emotion? When mm -hmm. do you want some emotion to drive? Like, let's say I'm driving from Switzerland to Le Mans all yeah. on the motorway. I want to get A to B. Yeah. Okay. I don't care what it is, but I'm like driving somewhere with a bit of emotion. And, that's, and it's not, yeah, yeah, in the Alps. And it's not about speed. Sure. It's about, Feel. you take a, a 550s spider mm. you just drive 50 60 kph yeah. from the 50s yeah, yeah. the car yeah. it's just pure emotion yeah and i think that is what's happening now uh that it just differentiates what is show fun emotion and what is just getting from a to b yeah. and i think uh that technology is coming and and now racing is finding its path its way mm -hmm. what is show and what is relevant maybe for the car from a to b yeah and that That's why I think motorsport will have an interesting future, and I think uh, also still a good future. Yeah, yeah. I, I think you're both right. You know, they're fantastic complementary forces. You know, things like the take and for putting on the cruise control and hitting the uh, the auto routes, and then of course this great smell of uh, you know oil and petrol and you know high RPM engines that are about to blow up because they've been so highly tuned. Yeah. You know, on the motorsport circuits. So. You know, I think we're we're really fortunate for the era that we're in right yeah, now. Absolutely. Um, so I think we we can wrap it up now. So I just want to say, you know, thank you to both of you. You know, it's been a great honor and a privilege for me to 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 share this conversation with you live in Porsche's garage uh, at Le Mans. And uh, thank you everyone for tuning in. And uh, we're looking forward to you us joining for the next episode of the Edge in the near future. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us at The Edge, a podcast by Tag Heuer. Don't forget to subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Edge is also an online magazine. Go to magazine.tagheuer.com for more articles, interviews, and photo series that bring together our love of watches and our desire to push ourselves to the edge of our limits. I'm your host, Theo van den Broeke. Until next time, keep an eye out. This is The Edge.